I'll invite you to turn now to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read once again, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read through to verse 12. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There are some difficult mysteries in the Christian life, truths that are sometimes difficult to hold together in a right balance at the same time. For example, the Christian is one who lives a life of rejoicing, who knows joy. We saw that lots in Philippians, the constant refrain of rejoicing. And yet at the same time, as we've seen in Matthew 5 here, the Christian is also one who mourns, one who mourns over sin, our own sin and the sin of the world around us. Likewise, a Christian is one who is very aware of our own spiritual poverty. And yet at the same time, the Christian is one who is spiritually rich beyond measure in Christ Jesus. So sometimes there are these things that we have difficulty keeping a, a balance of, and yet it's important that we seek to do just that. And as we come to the last couple of Beatitudes, we find this phenomenon once again. Namely, we see that the disciple is both, a disciple of Christ is both peacemaker and persecuted. If all we had here was that disciples are peacemakers, we might assume that everything is going to go well for the Christian, for the disciple. The Christian's message is going to be received by people. He's going to make the world a better place all around him. Everyone's going to acknowledge that. After all, he is a maker of peace. On the other hand, if all we had was that we would be persecuted, then we might assume that all we do as disciples is fight with people, that we should take a real aggressive posture towards the world. Or maybe we would think as persecuted people, then we need to just try to escape the world and uh, maybe just withdraw altogether from society, uh, some sort of monastic lifestyle. And yet when we hold both of these realities together, we find something different. 
Although Christians are indeed peacemakers, you can also still expect to be persecuted. And though you be persecuted, you are still a peacemaker. And to grasp this well, I think, is something of a challenge, something of a mystery. So as we move into verses 9 and 12 here of Matthew chapter 5, we're beginning to move into the relationship of disciples to the world around us. And this is going to continue into next week as we look at being salt and light. And so we continue today as we finish up the Beatitudes looking at marks of Christ's disciples. And our outline today just has two points. The first is the blessed peacemakers. It's verse 9. And then secondly, the blessed persecuted, which is verses 10 to 12. So let's begin with the blessed peacemakers. Verse 9, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The meaning of the word peacemaker in one sense is really quite straightforward. Uh, It's one who makes peace. Uh, A Greek lexicon of the Greek word here describes it as one who is endeavoring to reconcile persons who have disagreements. However, just simply having a dictionary definition still leaves a lot of unanswered questions here about what it means for a disciple to be a peacemaker. How are we to make peace? What exactly does it mean? What peace? Uh, between which parties? Who, what is this about exactly? And so to figure this out, I would suggest what we need to do is uh, look, view this in light of the rest of Scripture. And it might begin, as we do that, it might help to begin by looking at a few things that peacemaking is not. A few things peacemaking is not. First, it is not simply having an easygoing personality. As we have seen in the Beatitudes, these character traits that are being described are ones that demand the new birth. This is, this is the same here. This is something beyond just a natural kind of easygoing personality. It's more than a natural disposition. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones points out in his commentary that peacemaker does not mean being one who seeks peace at any price. This is another thing peacemaking is not. It, it is not doing anything and everything to just avoid conflict. As he says there, Lloyd-Jones, he notes that oftentimes people who do that overlook grave evil and maybe themselves even engage in sinful activity in order to avoid conflict. We see how this works, how people will um, compromise in order to just not have a conflict, just either maybe not saying what should be said or even agreeing with something that we ought not to agree with in order to just not have, you know, let any of the waters be rippled. As Lloyd-Jones says, the mere avoidance of war is not the same thing as peace. Whether we're talking about nations or whether we're talking about individuals, simply not fighting is not the same thing as peace. That's not the same thing as having two sides reconciled together. So it is not peace at any price, nor is it just simply avoiding conflict. Further, 
Peacemaking doesn't mean that we never resist or speak out against evil. This kind of naturally follows from what I just said. And the Bible is clear about this. Ephesians 5.11 even says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Well, if you expose a work of darkness, that might bring a measure of conflict. We understand that. Proverbs 28.4, Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. That is, against the wicked. So there is a time to rebuke. There is a time to confront. There is a time to oppose and challenge. Another thing this doesn't mean, peacemaking, it doesn't mean pacifism. We know from Romans chapter 13, and we can look at a number of other texts as well, that the state is to use the sword to punish evildoers, or the threat of the sword to punish evildoers. And peacemakers don't shrink back at the demands of justice in that regard. Of course, Ecclesiastes tells us there is a time to kill. There is a time for war, even. And we'll get eventually, later in chapter 5, to Jesus' words in verses 38 to 42 about turning the other cheek, and we'll look more then about how maybe all these things would fit together. But being a peacemaker does not mean these things. It's not simply an easygoing personality doesn't mean one who seeks peace at any price, just avoiding conflict. doesn't mean we never speak out against evil, and it's not talking about just being a pacifist. Well, then what is it? Well, first of all, it is describing one who has a peaceful disposition that arises from a new heart. Again, all of these characteristics, all of these beatitudes so far have demanded the new birth, and this one is no different. The Spirit of God is the one who regenerates a sinful heart, making one a disciple. And we're told in Galatians chapter 5 that one of the fruits of the Spirit is peace, right? The third one listed, love, joy, and peace. A disciple is one who is now himself or herself at peace with God. The enmity between God and the disciple that was there on account of the disciple's sin has now been put away. It has been put away on account of Christ. And the fruit that comes to such a person who is now enjoying peace with God is a peaceful disposition, no longer filled with just rage at anyone and everyone around them, anger at others, but peace. And so disciples, therefore, are not put it negatively, we're not pugnacious, disciples are not quarrelsome, simply stirring things up for the sake of enjoying a good fight, we just like to scrap and have at it and just want to be contrary and fight and quarrel and cause division and we enjoy these things, that's not, that's not the way for the disciple. And so being a peacemaker begins with a peaceful disposition that is a fruit of the Spirit that results from being made new. Second, 
If we think about this in light of the whole of Scripture, including Jesus' own mission in the book of Matthew, what he came to do, if we think about the the great commission that he then gives to the church at the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, it's unavoidable and I think necessary to conclude that the primary peacemaking that Christians, that disciples desire and pursue is to see peace between God and man. As I said, disciples have themselves experienced peace with God and now desire that for others. As peacemakers, disciples long to see sinful humanity reconciled to Almighty God. In fact, the Apostle Paul calls gospel ministry the ministry of reconciliation. So we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, and I want to read a few verses. You can turn there if you want. But 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 16, Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. So notice, once upon a time, he used to view people in a fleshly manner, in an unregenerate way. But now he does not regard them according to the flesh any longer. He views them different because he's now been reconciled to God. He has a new outlook, a new disposition. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There again is that regeneration, the new heart. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those that God has reconciled are the ones he has given the ministry of reconciliation to. This is what the church is about. This is what Christians are about. That is, he says in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus came the first time, he says in John, it was not to bring, we're told in John, it was not to bring judgment, but rather to bring salvation. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who came to make peace between sinners and God. And this is the very good news of the gospel that we proclaim to other people. In Isaiah 52, 7, we read this at the start of the service. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Notice, publishing and proclaiming salvation, good news is synonymous with proclaiming peace. And when Jesus was born, you recall the angels announced in Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
The God of peace has made peace with man. He has done this through sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to satisfy the wrath of our triune God by dying in the place of sinners, by taking our sins upon Himself and having God's holy and just wrath poured out upon Him, dying in the place of sinners and then rising from the dead in victory over that sin. Mission accomplished, justice satisfied. And as we read from 2 Corinthians, we receive the righteousness of God when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, credited to our account. We're justified by God's grace through faith, through believing in Christ Jesus. And so it is that sinners are at peace with God through Christ. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, talking of Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, Jews and Gentiles, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. And he goes on to speaking of how Jews and Gentiles, everyone who has faith in Christ is part of the same kingdom, fellow citizens in God's kingdom. Jesus is the peace of his people. And this text also shows us that for God's people, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, wherever you are from, whatever your background might be, whatever category of person you might be in or forced into, if you have faith in Christ Jesus and belong to him, there is now peace between you and God and between you and your fellow believers. Because we are made into one new man. You think about the Old Testament and the division between Jew and Gentile was significant. The people of God were those who were in covenant with God, namely through the Mosaic Covenant. You had to come into Israel. That was what was important. You were to come into Israel. And so there was separation, distinction. So so much of the clean and unclean laws were about. And Jesus came and he abolished this distinction and takes Jew and Gentile, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and knits them together into one new man, into one body. There is peace with God and then peace with one another. So peacemaking certainly involves taking the message of God's grace to the nations so that sinners who presently and currently sit under God's righteous condemnation might come to know peace with God. That's our message. You are a sinner. You do deserve God's wrath and judgment for your sin, but there is forgiveness of that sin. There is righteousness to be yours. There is peace with God to be had in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul lays out there, we are ambassadors 
making our appeal. God makes his appeal through his servants. For whatever reason, he uses you, you and me. He uses broken, messed up people, vessels of clay, in order to proclaim this good news to other sinners. Be reconciled to God. And so our message is one of peace. One commentator notes how strange and shocking this would have been for the zealots in Jesus' day who assumed that the coming Messiah would be coming with military might and he would be conquering by force. And for the Messiah to show up and for the message to be one of peace to those who are far off and to Israel as well, to Jew and Gentile. And this kind of a mindset can still persist among believers today, and it's something that we should guard against. We know, of course, that righteous judgment will come one day. We've read the book of Revelation. We're aware that Jesus will come as a warrior and bring about final judgment. We know that day is coming. But today, until that time, today is the day of salvation. Today there is good news to be proclaimed, to be shared, to be believed. The fact is, the the reality that Christ has not yet returned reveals to us that he's not done saving sinful people. He's not done gathering a people for himself. There are more people to come into the fold all across the world from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It is the day of salvation. And so I say that the concept of peacemaking, I think primarily we have to understand that as having in view the message of the gospel itself, the peace that it brings between sinner and God and then between believers as a result of that. But I will add, I don't think we need to stop there as we think about peacemakers. We don't need to limit it simply to gospel ministry. As those who've come to know peace with God and now possess a more peaceful disposition, Christians also are those who seek and promote peace anywhere that we have opportunity to do so. We are not those who delight in division, who delight in war, who delight in violence. Even when the sword of justice must fall, We do not delight in the violence of that. It's a necessary thing. We can acknowledge it is good. It is just. But we can also do it with a heavy heart. We don't delight in division. We desire peace. Even at times where war might be necessary, a just war, it would be an absolute last resort. And ultimately, because peace seems unattainable in any other way here, with the goal still at the end of the day of having peace. Where possible in our relationships and all around us, we are those who promote peace. This whole matter of peacemaking implies that Christians do not withdraw entirely from society. That's a, a tempting 
thing at times. It might be especially tempting in light of what we'll see in a moment here in verses 10 to 12 about persecution. But we, re- we have a role to play in the world as peacemakers. We have good news to publish to the world, which prevents us from just purely disappearing off the map and hiding out in monasteries. Now, obviously, in times of persecution, intense persecution, it is obviously good to be shrewd, to be wise, to be careful. I don't think it means we just have to march headlong into death. If there's ways to avoid it, we can seek to be wise, to be careful. But complete withdrawal from the unbelieving world is not an option. And again, we see in the New Testament times where believers flee persecution. But of course, they're still landing in the world somewhere and taking the gospel with them. So we must take this talk of peacemaking to heart today. It is easy. It is easy to become bitter. It is easy to become angry. I... I certainly know that temptation. I trust I'm not the only one here. But we look around us, we see evil, we see wickedness, we see inability to think clearly all around us. We see various types of injustice. We see people suffering because of it. And it is easy to start to view the world with a despising and perhaps even a self-righteousness. And just become angry about it. But this is something that we must resist. We must fight against. And not give in to. But to remember how God, the God of peace, has made peace with you. And to seek to stir up compassionate hearts. To desire to be those peacemakers. And to hold forth peace with God to others around us. The promise that is given here is that peacemakers shall be called sons of God. Christ's people are indeed adopted by God and rightfully call him our father. We do this now. Jesus will tell us in chapter 6 of Matthew, when we pray, we pray our father in heaven. The believer's status as a son, is a present reality. Scripture makes this very clear. And yet, this verse, as with other promises in the Beatitudes, has a future outlook, a future component. There is coming a day when God will reveal who are the ones that belong to him as his sons. So Romans chapter 8 captures the now and the not yet of sonship, I think, very well. In verse 14, It says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That is, are presently now sons of God. Then a couple verses later in verse 19, it says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 19 is in the context of this future coming glory in which Christ brings about the new creation in its fullness. And the sons of God are then at that time revealed for what we are. The peacemakers 
will be called sons of God. Once again, this keeps us focused on the end, on the eternal state. If you have received the new birth, you are now a peacemaker, then you are a son now, and you will be vindicated and revealed as the son that you are on that last day. And of course, the Bible uses this language of sonship, but of course it includes females as well. Sonship implies more than simply being male. It involves inheritance, rights, and status, something that all believers, male and female, share in as God's adopted children. So we have... The blessed peacemakers. Now let's move on to verse 10. The blessed persecuted. I think persecution is intentionally placed at the end of the Beatitudes here. And I think intentionally right after peacemaking. Persecution is a little different. It's not a disposition. It's not really a character trait of a Christian. But it is a mark of a Christian, of a disciple. It will occur. And it reveals, among other things, that our peacemaking efforts will not always be well received. So verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I think it's best to understand that verse 10 is the last beatitude. Although verse 11 does begin with the word blessed, same word, uh, it doesn't have the same formula as the verses that come before it, as the rest of the beatitudes, which say blessed are the blank for this reason. So verse 11 and 12, they're, they're a little different in that way. They don't share the same formula. Also, The Beatitudes speak generally of disciples and in the third person. But verse 12 switches to the second person plural. So it moves from blessed are the persecuted in general in verse 10 to blessed are you, namely you disciples right in front of me that I'm talking to. That's I think what's happening here is Jesus switches it there. So it seems best to view verses 11 and 12 as an application and an expansion of the beatitude in verse 10, specifically addressing the disciples that were right there in front of Jesus. The subject of persecution has been one that has been debated. It has been debated quite a bit, really in the past couple of years. In light of some churches being fined, and of course, as we've seen, Um, churches or pastors being imprisoned actually churches being imprisoned too at least one um, church fenced off the question underneath the discussion has been what is persecution Uh, what defines persecution and some people seem to want to define it so narrowly 
as if the persecutor has to say something like, this is because you are a Christian, or you cannot preach the gospel, and that's why I'm treating you this way. Uh, Some people seem to think that has to be there in order for it to count as persecution. But look at what Jesus says here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It is those persecuted for the sake of, on account of, or because of righteousness that are blessed. Now we noted last week that disciples are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that this involves certainly hungering for the imputed righteousness of Christ that's ours by faith. We talked a bit about that. But, but really what's in view there is the, it is the desire to pursue a life of righteousness. We want to not only be accounted righteous because of what Christ has done, but also to then be, be righteous in and of ourselves as those who are saved by God's grace. This hunger and thirst for it remains. It is seeking to live our lives in obedience to our Lord, the God who has redeemed us. And so it involves things like praying, reading the Bible, evangelizing people, gathering as a church to enjoy the means of grace, speaking the truth in love, seeking to live uprightly in all spheres of life. It is a somewhat general category, this righteousness. And Jesus pronounces blessing upon those who are persecuted because of this. In verse 11, Jesus speaks of being persecuted on my account or because of me. So we have being persecuted because of righteousness and persecuted because of me. And when we put this together, we can see that Jesus is speaking of being persecuted because of living the life of a Christian believing the gospel, and then seeking to live in light of it, speaking what is righteous, because that's what Christ calls us to do, acting out, living obediently to Christ. And so this could come in the form of a vicious attack specifically aimed at Christianity itself, hatred of the gospel, and an overt desire to silence it. That is absolutely happens and can happen and does happen. And that would be suffering for righteousness sake, being persecuted on account of Christ. But we ought not to limit it to that. I think it includes other forms. So for example, let's say At work, your boss asks you to do something that's immoral. He wants you to lie so that you might save him money. That's not a, that's a, that happens. It's not a crazy example. And you refuse to do it. Why? As a Christian, you say, God has shown me grace. He has purchased me through Christ. It will dishonor him if I go through with this. I cannot do it because of Christ. I cannot do this. And so you don't. Your Lord calls you to integrity and uprightness for righteousness sake on account of Christ. You can't do it. And so you don't. And as a result, you suffer. 
Your boss flies into a rage. He becomes cold towards you, perhaps. Maybe you're fired or you're just passed over for promotion. You're no longer viewed as a team player. You're kind of ostracized. This kind of stuff in different areas of life and spheres, it happens all the time. And I would suggest to you, that is part of what Jesus is talking about here. That fits this description here of suffering for righteousness sake. That is a form of it. Now some people might object because they might say, well, an unbeliever in the same situation, they might also have done the same thing. They maybe have a slightly less seared conscience than their boss and they say, no, they're not going to do it and they could also end up suffering for it. So it's not a Christian persecution. However, the text doesn't talk of it as a Christian persecution. It says, well, it sort of does because it's for Christ, but it, it talks of suffering for righteousness sake. The unbeliever doesn't do what he does because of Christ. His act is good. We would applaud a person for not lying and cheating. But his motive is not to please the Lord. He's not suffering on account of Christ. I think 1 Peter is very helpful in sorting this out. If you want to turn to chapter 3 of 1 Peter, but before I get there, in chapter 2, verse 19, still 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2.19, Peter commends slaves, saying, It is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Right? Many, all kinds of people suffer injustice because they have to. They have no, they have no choice but to endure injustice. But it is specifically said to be gracious when God's people endure it mindful of God because of their convictions about the Lord. Peter doesn't say, first find out, is he just, is, is, if you're suffering under a cruel master, is he just targeting Christians first? Is it because you're a Christian explicitly? If so, then it's a gracious thing. You can be blessed and encouraged. He doesn't say that. Just if you suffer and you endure it, it's injustice, you're mindful of God, it's a gracious thing. Then in verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Notice the same language as Matthew 5.10. Suffering for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Same, same word, same wording. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So notice in those verses... We have good, doing good, righteousness, and good behavior in Christ. They're really all used synonymously there. And he's talking about doing what is good and right and having that driven by one's Christian convictions. It is good behavior in Christ. And I would submit to you that's synonymous to what Jesus is saying here when he talks about suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering persecution on my account or because of me. 
Living in a fallen and evil world means that we will suffer for being Christians. And it can come in a variety of ways. Joseph, you recall Joseph, he ran from Potiphar's wife because he wouldn't dishonor his God with her. And he suffered for it. His suffering was not because it was illegal, he wasn't allowed to be a son of Israel, or it was illegal to, you know, his faith was outlawed in the land. Rather, he suffered because he He sought to live uprightly because of his upright conduct at which Potiphar's wife raged at. She hated that and despised him for that. And of course, he winds up in prison. This action, his upright conduct was driven by his faith and he suffered for it. He suffered for righteousness sake. Look at verse 11 again. It says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. To be persecuted here is listed in between being reviled and having evil falsely uttered about you. Persecute is a more general term, speaking of harassment that can take various forms. And I think this is revealing here that it is right to see the reviling, that's an insult, reviling, and the slander as forms of persecution. There's not hard division between all three of these terms. They're taken together. And I think this is confirmed in verse 12 when it says, For so, that is, in this way, that is, through reviling and slander, in this way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Being reviled and slandered is listed here among the ways that disciples can expect to be persecuted. Maybe you've heard it said, maybe you've even said it before. I don't know, I, I probably have. If I haven't said it, I know it there's been I know I've thought this way at times. But maybe you've heard it said that what happens in North America is not a real persecution. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's helpful. Persecution is not just being physically tortured. It's not just dying for the faith. It is not something that only occurs to those living where the faith is outlawed by the governing authorities entirely. If it were then it wouldn't be true that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, which is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. And again, right here, we have reviling and slander as part of the persecution and suffering for righteousness' sake that believers can expect. Now, I think when people say that it's not a real persecution in North America that we experience... Perhaps some of what people are getting at is that it's not as bad as other places. And of course, we should acknowledge that that is true. Right? We ought to acknowledge that there are degrees of persecution and, and not be maybe overly dramatic about lesser forms of it. Right? To keep perspective about our suffering. Even if you think about Hebrews when it talks about how we've not, you've not yet 
resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Right? It's, it's perspective that's helpful. And so it's right to admit that there are different degrees of persecution. That's important. But we also not, ought not to pretend that being slandered, falsely accused, falsely have evil muttered about you, to be reviled and insulted, we should not speak of that as if it is nothing. For Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you. So hear that. You've, you've been reviled. You've had evil maybe uttered about you. Could be at work. Could be in all kinds of forms or places. Let's not rob anyone of the comfort of these words of blessing by denying lesser forms of persecution. And obviously as well, as just in our reading of 1 Peter 3 there, the Bible acknowledges that there is another category of suffering for evil. And if you as a Christian do something that is evil, that is sinful, and you suffer consequences as a result, then you, you, cannot, you don't get to claim that as persecution. Right? That, that's, that's, that should be a given. And so if you think back even to a year ago, this was all, people were talking about this um, a year ago, I think it was about a year ago, when James Coates was arrested. And the conversations then about whether it was persecution, I think got sidetracked and somewhat missed the point, at least at times, from what I could see. They got sidetracked with statements about how the government wasn't targeting Christians. And so it wasn't persecution. But I think the real question was whether or not it was righteous to gather the church during that time. That's really, I think, what the underlying issue was. Was it a righteous thing for churches to meet at that time or not? If it was... Well, then it's suffering for righteousness sake if you're arrested or fined or whatever else for that. So it's an, it's an important matter because either a man like James Coates is sitting in prison, he should either be repenting of having done evil and now sitting in his cell, or he should hear the comfort of these words of Christ saying, blessed are you. That's, that's what's on at stake there. And so I think a lot of people thought it just wasn't righteous to meet and gather. And that was really the real issue, though it's, it was maybe a difficult argument to make. And so the conversation becomes, you know, these, these uh, overly specific definition of uh, or overly narrow definition of persecution. I mean, imagine for a second that a gov governing authorities want to limit public assembly and that that happens that happens one of the hallmarks of the free western world is the right to peaceful assembly it's a it's it's a a good thing it's a great thing but tyrants tend to not like that even in nova scotia recently within the last two years there was admission either the uh premier or it was the the top doctor that that part of the lockdown thing was that their, under, their disinformation would spread if there's large gatherings. And so they wanted to clamp down on that because they didn't want information contradicting them to go around. That's, so it happens. 
Governments like to lock people down. It happens through history. Let's say that happens. And they say, we want to lock down so disinformation doesn't spread. You can't spread disinformation. And so you can't have gatherings of more than 10 people. If such a thing occurred, and that's not a crazy thought, if such a thing happened, is that specifically targeting churches and Christians? Well, no, it's general. Nobody can assemble beyond 10. But who happens to be in the crosshairs of that? Christians, churches. Because we're told to gather. It's righteous and good to gather. And so if a church were to gather and be fined, arrested, in trouble for that, would we really take the opinion that, well, look, that's targeting a lot of different people, not just Christians, so I guess these promises don't apply. It's not really persecution. It's just, it doesn't hold. So as you live your Christian life, as you pursue righteousness, you will find yourself in conflict with other people. And when you suffer for doing what is right, whether you're preaching the gospel and you're evangelizing somebody, somebody or whether you're taking a stand for something that is righteous and good at work somewhere else and you suffer for it and you're doing it on account of your Christian convictions, then you should remember the comfort that is given here. And we'll get to this comfort more in just a moment. One more just real brief implication from this. This implies that you cannot make the world's reaction to you the measure of whether you're doing things right. We are not to be pragmatists. We speak the truth, we seek to live uprightly, and we leave the results to God. Some will see your good works, and as we'll see next week, give glory to God for it, while others will revile you and slander you for it. To some, the gospel will be the aroma of life. To others, it is the smell and stench of death. In some cases, our efforts to see God and man be reconciled and peace will be fruitful, and we will see that peacemaking occur. There will be peace. Other times, you'll be hated for it. We cannot make man's reaction the measure of whether we're doing things right. We're called to live in the fear of God, to live our lives before his face, not to please man. So Jesus gives us encouragement here. Persecution is unpleasant. He says, blessed are you. But it doesn't mean persecution is going to always feel great. Being stoned is not a pleasant experience in any sense as Paul himself endured and others have. But whatever its form, being reviled is not a pleasant experience. So let's look to the blessings and promises here. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the same promise that the Beatitudes began with in verse three. Again, Christ's disciples are citizens of heaven above, the kingdom of heaven. And so we can, we can endure any measure of persecution that happens to come to us. It might seem impossible, but we can endure it with the knowledge that we belong to the eternal kingdom. This will pass away one day. 
And so our need is for an eternal mindset to lay hold of this truth. And surely it is this truth that will help us to put off the fear of man. In verse 12, we're told to rejoice and be glad. Again, persecution is painful. And yet, rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. Again, looking forward to the kingdom of heaven. And realizing what Jesus says here as he speaks of reward that will be yours. Truly that his disciples would receive reward is grace. Is a sign of God's grace. Is a gift. For we deserve nothing. We are simply unworthy servants doing what we've been told by our God to do. He then explains why the reward is great for so they persecuted. In this way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus places persecuted Christians alongside the prophets of old, suffering the same fate. He points you to your heritage. If you suffer for Christ's sake in this life, you're simply walking the same path as the faithful who've gone before you. This, is a, this should be a comfort to you when you suffer that. This is the way it goes for God's people. And we see this throughout Scripture. Even David himself, he was a king. But prior to that, he suffered greatly and in, un, unjustly under the hand of Saul. Jeremiah, the great prophet Jeremiah, persecuted. New lament. Think of Hebrews 11. Many more examples of those who suffered. The reference here to the prophets may even signal that disciples will carry on the mantle of being God's mouthpiece to the world. Again, proclaiming God's word to mankind, publishing the good news of grace and of Christ, and yet suffering as the prophets of old, who likewise preached God's word. So when persecution comes on account of living your life to Christ, whether it's the result of seeking as best you can to speak righteous words or live righteous with righteous actions, take comfort in the fact that suffering is the way of God's people. In fact, Jesus taught us in John that a servant is not above his master. If they hated him, they would hate us. If they persecuted him, they would persecute us. Christ Jesus came from above to publish peace. And they nailed him to a cross. If this is how evil mankind treats the Son of God who is perfect, who never mingled righteous action with sinful flesh as we do, how much more will we be treated severely? It is common to underestimate just how sinful and evil mankind is. And yet... Although we be persecuted, we are also peacemakers. We still go to this sinful world with this message of reconciliation. And this is our primary message in this day and in this hour. 
even as we desire to see righteous laws of the land enacted, as we desire to see injustices righted, we are still those who stand apart from the rest of the world as those who proclaim Christ Jesus, not only as Lord who will one day judge and who rules now, but Christ Jesus who has come to make peace between God and man, a peace that is experienced and received by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of our sin and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the worst of sinners around us, we still preach this message to them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We give you praise, Father, for being the one to make peace between us and you. We know that in ourselves there dwells no good thing. That our flesh, even now, as your people who've been redeemed, who've been created anew, we still battle with our flesh. We still recognize impoverishment in our spirit. We still mourn our sinfulness. And yet you have made peace with us. So we praise you. We worship you. We thank you. Father, forgive us where we fall short and we are maybe angry with the world around us where we lack compassion. Forgive me, forgive all of us where that has been the case. Renew within us this compassionate disposition. Maybe a compassion for the loss that we've maybe forgotten even. Father, we pray for your, we ask for your forgiveness and we pray for renewal. Purify us further yet. Father, we pray for strength and grace to endure persecution, whatever form it may come. Father, I pray that we would not become fearful, that we would not be angry about it, but that we would still have compassion, whatever suffering might come our way, and call out to you for reprieve and for relief from it. Father, give us wisdom in these days and in days ahead. Help us, we are continually a very needy people. And we thank you for your tremendous mercies and your promise to continue to be merciful to your church. In Jesus' name, amen.